This is Doty Land. Conversations from the Madison Isthmus. Here is Gregory Humphrey. Well, hello there and welcome to another podcast from the Madison Isthmus on Doty Land. In 1982, I volunteered for my first campaign. On a Sunday afternoon, a beautiful fall day leading up to the election, I had a number of blocks up in Door County in the city of Sturgeon Bay that I was going to give literature to. And as I knocked on the doors, I noticed that people were grumpy. They were irritable. They were short-tempered. Some were clearly drinking. Finally, I knock on a door. A man comes out and he says, Do you know what day it is? Well, obviously, it is Sunday. And then he adds, Well, the Packers are playing. Now, I grew up in a home where football and sports was not a big item on the agenda. In fact, we never watched sports on television at all. So I was a little taken aback how people could not watch a football game and also answer the door. I did have presence of mind, however, not to reveal which candidate that I was working for. I bid the man a nice day and walked away. I tell that story because it's funny. Well, it's funny now. But politics should be fun. We should have good memories of it. And too often, politics is mean-spirited and it's too dirty. So I want to be uplifting in our conversation today. We have a great interview and a great person that's going to provide insight into why we should have faith in politics. And that interview is coming up right after this. Nikki Vandermeulen is an attorney for juvenile defense issues, a Madison school board member, and now a candidate for the 76th Assembly District. Welcome to Doty Land, Nikki. Thank you for having me in Doty Land. Well, Pleasure to meet you. It, it's it's wonderful to have you here. I, you have an impressive life story, a, a really impressive resume, and I'd like you to take my listeners and uh, talk with them about what motivated you to get involved with a state assembly race. What was the issue that that said to you, I have to be involved with this, I can talk about this better than others, I can lead better than others. What was the motivating issue for this race? The motivating issue for this race was COVID-19, actually, because I started reading the articles about ventilators, and these ventilators, and whether or not the disabled had a right to a ventilator, and whether or not individuals with cognitive disabilities even had a right to. There are communities in England that have forced autistics to sign do not resuscitate orders because to give other people a chance. Uh, in in uh, Georgia, at one point, there was a, a recommendation to pass a rule that would state that hospitals give ventilators to individuals with disabilities as the same thing in Kansas City that has also been changed. But Wisconsin tried to pass a medical rationing law in 2011 that was supported by the Wisconsin Medical College. And that's what really inspired this because the disabled are only asked when it's two weeks before an election or at the last minute. And these are our lives on the line. For my listeners, we are about 24 hours past the time when the Supreme Court handed down the ruling against Governor Tony Evers. What's your reaction to what the court did yesterday? What the court did yesterday was, as from an attorney perspective, deeply, deeply concerning. From a moral perspective, it's absolutely morally wrong and disgusting. 
For a legal perspective, there are three branches of government, and to see the court decide that they are going to ignore that and legislate from the bench is deeply disturbing. What's next? Are we going to reinstitute other policies such as separate but equal education? Are we going to cut? It? Are we going to start arresting doctors for for doing abortion? That was that's still legal technically federally in the United States. Or sterilization of the disabled is still legal. Buck v. Bell, which stated three generations of imbeciles is enough. The COVID-19 issue that is front and center, um, as you said, to your candidacy is something that everybody's talking about. Of course, we've had the state shut down. Businesses have been uh, shut down. Employees have been uh, hoping and wondering where their next paycheck is going to come from. How does the pandemic affect the way that you run an election. You've run in times when you could go up to the front door and ask for your nomination papers to be signed or shake hands and greet people and talk about the issues. How are you needing to modify your campaign based on the pandemic? It's a it's a whole new world out there. I used to go door to door. I'm now everything is computerized. I am using virtual phone banks. I am calling through lists and doing video chats. I'm learning more about Zoom than I ever wanted to know about Zoom in my entire life. At the same point, I'm also honored that we have the access to that technology. Because for years, the disability community has asked to be able to work from home and to use that technology. We were told these accommodations were impossible. Now, it didn't really take a pandemic for people to realize they aren't impossible. As you look at the possibility of being elected to the state assembly, are you thinking about what one or two bills that you might like to get into the the hopper, if you will, as soon as you're sworn in and able to do something under the dome? And if so, what are those bills and what are your ideas on those bills? My major ones, one, to change the school funding formula. Right now, um, the way we have it, rural schools are getting so much less than other districts to the point they almost have to close. If you see Palmyra Eagle, nearly avoided being shut down completely because a referendum failed. Schools shouldn't have to have a referendum to be able to meet basic services. Clearly, this needs to be changed. The other two bills I bring are one, 17-year-olds back, back into the juvenile justice system. I'm a juvenile attorney. I can tell you 17-year-olds aren't adults. They're not mentally adults. They should not be tried as adults. Um, the number one place my clients hide their stuff is under their bed. I am not dealing with a master criminal. I'm dealing with a 17-year-old kid. And we have to realize these are children, not hardened criminals. And I don't want them to add to the school-to-prison pipeline and be hardened criminals. And the third one, which is personal, is to get rid of, um, make Wisconsin the seventh state to get rid of the sub-minimum wage. Sub-minimum wage is the ability to pay the disabled under $2 an hour. Some people make four steps an hour because um, was because um, the disabled are exempt from the Fair, Lay, Fair Wage Labor Act, the 14th exception. This was a law created in 1938. When I was a boy, I grew up in central Wisconsin, and as a boy, we would have tornado drills in schools. You'd go out into the hallway, get near a brick wall, hunker down, put your hands over your head, and we were instructed how to deal with inclement weather. Today, in schools across the nation, across the state, we have shooting drills for kids. And you're interested and have been very much involved with uh, mental health issues. And I just have to ask you, with your background and your, your care and concern, what would you say 
to parents? What do you say to kids? But what do you say about the issue at large when we have gun drills in our schools? And what does that do to our young people, our young minds that are being formed? But what does it do to parents also who have to send their kids off to school not knowing, God forbid, if something might bad happen? It terrifies both the students and the parents. I've gone through one of those drills because I visited all 50 schools, and I purposely was in a special ed classroom at Memorial High School on the day one of them occurred. I can tell you it was one of the most disturbing things I've ever seen. There's a difference between practicing and terrifying. Watching students worry from period to period of what was going to happen and which way they were going to escape. They could concentrate on nothing else. That's not how you learn. Active shooter drills, unfortunately, being prepared is a necessity. Active shooter drills aren't. What we need to do is have a safe escape plan of what to do in a situation. But any drill that requires either fake ammo, people banging on doors and creating noise, or trying to re-simulate the event will only lead to more trauma, not less. Just like with our fire drills or our tornado drills. You didn't completely reenact the entire drill. What you did is say, this is what we need you to do to say, stay. You didn't reenact the entire storm. And <laughs> same thing with our students. We don't want them to be exposed to everything. I want to keep our students safe. I also don't want them to lose some of the innocence they have. We are children for only so long, and we should be able to hold on to that childhood and innocence, if you will, as long as possible. Um, and when we're doing a kindergartners at five years old, I don't want a five-year-old losing their wonder because they think someone with a gun will get them. What was your reaction when the state legislature, both in the Assembly and the Senate, gabbled in and gabbled out instantly? The special session that Governor Evers called for the background check and the red flag laws. When you heard that or saw the video image of that, what went through your mind? Just absolute horror and absolute disgust because people are going to... These red flag lives save lives. Domestic violence victims, abuse victims, even victims in school shootings. There's nothing wrong with a red flag law that protects people. We have speed limits for cars. We have requirements for insurance for vehicles. Why don't we, and we allow restrictions on that. Why is it so wrong to have restrictions on firearms? And I'm not talking repealing the Second Amendment. I'm talking trigger locks. I'm talking reasonable efforts such as no straw man purchases, not allowing individuals at gun shows to sell without notifying without notifying the database because this involves lives and innocent lives, people who didn't even choose to be around the gun. And that's very concerning. I'd like to take you back to the COVID-19 issue for a moment. Many of our citizens here in Madison and across the state have their health insurance tied with their employment. And when the COVID-19 disrupted businesses and then also the employees of those businesses, many people are rightfully concerned about what would happen if some some of the jobs are lost. And we have to admit that some of the jobs are not coming back. What do you have to say about the attachment of insurance to employment in the state of Wisconsin, and what might be done to rectify the issue? Insurance should be a human right. Healthcare is a human right. 
providing that insurance for that human right is a necessity that could not be tied to work. It should be something that is provided. We have money from the lottery. We have money from many programs. And I believe in taxing on the upper classes because these are societal programs that affect society. What we are doing is creating classes of have and have dots. When you tie healthcare to someone's work, that if they lose a job or they get laid off over no fault of their own, their family goes into poverty. That's unacceptable. The number of medical bills I've had in my life because I have cerebral palsy, Asperger's syndrome, attention deficit, along with some other conditions, would have been astronomical without insurance. The fact that I could stay on my parents' insurance because of Obamacare meant I couldn't be discriminated against. That was huge. The ability to not have my medical conditions used against me. People are like, why are you for Obamacare? Because it gives someone like me a chance without being saddled by debt for things that we are born with. We didn't choose it. This is something, this is who we are. And society takes people as we find them. Before we used to celebrate diversity, and we still should, but right now, it's almost like we're punishing people for their differences. And that's just not right. I'd like to ask you another question about something that uh, strikes to me fundamentally, yep. because uh, my dad was in, in, I'm sorry, in town government for uh, 40 years. He was a town supervisor, and we always talked about road aids at home. In the state of Wisconsin, we have not had a comprehensive transportation budget for many a cycle. And I'm not going to ask you how you would fund it or how you would uh, come up and construct a program to um, put a funding mechanism in place. What I do want to talk about maybe is at a 30,000 feet, if you will, how is it that in the state of Wisconsin, we no longer are able to do in the legislature the big things that need to be done? I would argue that the transportation budget is one of those, the ineptness of the COVID-19 plans for the pandemic and dealing with it for the entire state of Wisconsin, the health and well-being. How is it that we are at a place in our state government where dysfunction seems to be the only thing that can be accomplished? What are your thoughts? What happened to the 10th century is correct now. Absolute power corrupts absolutely. That's what Lord Action said in the 10th century and holds true today. When you don't reach across the aisle, when you don't work with your colleagues, when you decide that partisanship is the most important value, the issues of the state will suffer. What we have is a hyper-partisan environment where we are part, we are making people choose between voting and their own life. I have had friends tell back home, say, well, please don't go vote to their own family members. This is in Whitewater. Or, because they were worried about whether or not they would spread it to other people. Mm -hmm. You shouldn't have to have that happen. And th But Whitewater's so rural that that's where I grew up. That's a major issue. Transportation needs to be dealt with, and we need to cross the aisle on how to do it. Because, plain and simple, people who are being left out are black, brown, disabled, and poor. And it's not like we could just up and move to where there's more transportation. We can't. So we need to bring transportation to that. 
And compromise is the oxygen of democracy. And uh, reaching across the aisle and compromising, that has been the whole construct from the very beginning of our nation. And it seems that it is forgotten under the dome. The Wisconsin State Journal has been, for a number of years, um, editorializing about the need for reforming the way that we draw our political boundaries. In the state of Iowa, they have a commission that deals with the drawing of the boundary lines. It is taken out of the legislative hands. It's taken out of the partisan lines. And the final product is then given to the legislature for an up or down vote without amendment. Would you support, or what are your views on, a commission of that type for the state of Wisconsin? I like that point, but here's the thing. I also like the Maryland model which is where a bipartisan commission, this is used on judges, but it's also used on other governmental decisions, where the bipartisan commission gives a list of suggestions to the governor, and the governor selects from that list. Therefore, the governor's power is not limited. At the same point, there's still a check on the power itself. Because right now, what we're doing isn't working. This hyper-gerrymandering is awful. I mean... Only in the United States are we going to have a term in which is caused because someone's district looked like a salamander, and that's literally how we got the term. That's how you should do government. I mean, if you look, Thomas Jefferson and Alexander Hamilton hated each other. They still managed to create one of the best documents this world has seen. If they could do it, I'm sure the heck think we could. Amen. Uh, another item uh, that has come up in the Wisconsin State Journal editorial pages deals with how we might improve upon selecting justices for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. They have come up with the idea, and not they've editorialized on it. Other people have actually implemented it in states, merit selection. So instead of having judicial races where we see the bombast and the contentiousness with manufacturers and commerce on the right and liberal advocacy groups on the left. A commission would come up with perhaps 10 names, the governor would make a selection, and then 10 years after the person had been on the bench, there would be a vote only on accepting another term for the person or denying it. And instead of having this bombastic, politicized nature of races for the court, merit selection might be an option. Is that something that you've thought about? And if so, what are your thoughts on it? I, I have thought about it, and I have to look at the state laws of Wisconsin to make sure that that is doable. But I do like the idea because, very simply, the judicial branch of government was designed to be nonpartisan. It is to hear the legal claims of the citizens of the state. And the Supreme Court designed to hear the problems that are brought to them, not to be activists, not to make decisions on what's politically expedient. When you end up doing elections on judges who can't take political stances to begin with, you're kind of defeating the point of creating the third branch of government, which is supposed to be not partisan. There's a reason judges don't have an R or a D before their name, because that's not supposed to happen. Where political party and beliefs should and need to be set aside for the good of the nation. And the way we're doing it is that working. I think merit selection is one way we could work on it along with changes on gerrymandering and also making sure we work with, with the state bar of our state to make sure that all the requirements are followed. I'd like to um, ask you a question about the role of leadership in the state assembly. If you were to be elected, do you think it's your 
role to take a barometer reading, if you will, a temperature reading of your district and vote with the majority? Or do you think that your role might be to read and ponder and think and talk to the experts and perhaps take a different view than the majority in your district and try to lead them to a new way of seeing an issue? Or do you see a combination thereof? What, what do you see as the role, the leadership role of a legislator if you were to be elected? The leadership role is put on the ceiling of the governor's office. The will of the people is the law of the land. I truly believe that. The experts can opine, and I will definitely listen to the experts. But I need to know what my people, what people think. They are the ones who elected representative government to respect their interests. It's not just I want to be reelected. It's not just what I think. It's what the community as a whole thinks. Same thing with school board. Why I visited all fifty schools so I could see what each school thought because not one of them the same and their needs aren't the same so you need to have the will of the people behind you yes that sometimes means taking unpopular stances and that will occasionally happen but to completely ignore the will of the people is to ignore the job requirements in my view the final question and this is the final question i've been asking each of the assembly candidates that has been interviewed on Doty land what book are you now reading what book would you say is so good everybody should read it? book that everyone should read I like is 11-22-63 by Stephen King. It's about the assassination of Kennedy, about someone going back in time to stop it, and the effects of what happens to U.S. government and politics if the assassination ever occurred and how it affects the civil rights movement. It's actually pretty fascinating for fiction because it actually... It explains quite a bit. As for what I'm currently reading, The Testament, I um, Margaret Atwood. Wonderful choice. That's great. Do you enjoy books? Love. I have been a bibliophile for a very, very long time. Um, I learned to read at three because my doctors didn't know if I'd be able to. So my grandmother took me to the Madison Public Library, which shelf still remains in because they used the same building, and taught me how to check out a book at three years old, saying it was important that I learned how to read because experts have one view, but it's up to me to decide what is and isn't possible. And I remember that. I remember her putting my jacket on me and riding the bus with her because she, she didn't drive either. Um, and going to the library and doing that because she lived in Madison and we'd come up and visit. And books have always been the equalization and way that it evens the playing ground in my life. Books and education have always played that role for me. That is a wonderful answer. And now maybe there will be one more question. Do you read the old-fashioned way with print or do you do it with digital? That's the big question. Print. There you go. I need to hold the book. I, I, it just doesn't feel the same. You have to have that tactile it's, experience. It, it just does. I'm allowed to that one. <laughs> well, that's wonderful. I really appreciate, Nikki, the time that you took today to sit down with our listeners on Doty Land. I want you to be safe on the campaign trail, and I want you to have fun. Too often, politics becomes dirty and mean and bombastic, and yeah. we forget that politics also should be uplifting, inspiring. You gave a great, inspiring interview today, and I wish you the very best, and good luck and stay safe.
Thank you. You too. You can find out more about today's guest and related material and contact information on the Doty Land Facebook page. Please join and become a friend. And thank you for joining us today on Doty Land. Thank you.